Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Like me and you are in the sandwich generation, you are feeling the squeeze. Axios is actually leading this morning with reporting related to those of us who are uh, in what should be sort of the prime of life and the prime of productivity, uh, certainly our prime working years, but increasing family and financial pressures on both ends related to our kids who have not been in school and are not doing things over the summer that they would traditionally be engaged in because none of those Things are available Um, and pressures on the other end from an aging generation of parents who are requiring a much greater level of our care and attention in order for us to keep them safe during uh, COVID-19 challenges. So we um, we're feeling the squeeze. I recognize that Pew Research Center says that 47 percent of adults in their 40s and 50s have a parent 65 or older and are also either raising their own children or financially supporting a child at this time. Uh, 15% are additionally providing financial support to both their parents and their children. 38% say both their grown children and their parents continue to rely on them for not only emotional but also some financial support. So that has implications. The the Axios piece actually uh, lays out all the implications for employers I would also like to point out um, this this has implications for churches and every other nonprofit and volunteer organization that has historically relied particularly on women um, to provide millions of hours of unpaid service um, in, in all kinds of spaces and places uh, and efforts across the country. Um, we're not available. Like I, I don't there, you can't squeeze a volunteer hour out of me right now because um, there's not one. There's just not one more to give. And so for those of us in the sandwich generation, just a. Uh, an encouraging shout out this morning. Um, you know, God, God has prepared us in advance for this day. Um, but I recognize that it's stressful. I recognize you're under strain. I recognize the pressures are great. I feel them too. Um, and so let us be of encouragement to one another. And then for those of you who are in positions of leadership in churches and volunteer organizations, you just absolutely have to know the squeeze is already on. Um, those people upon whom you have traditionally relied for volunteer um, hours. Um, You know, obviously older adults are not available to do the things that they have been available to do in the past because it's not safe for them right now. And then increasingly, those those moms maybe that you relied on um, are also daughters, and we are caring for both our aging parents and our kids who uh, are still at home. All right. uh, One story that I am watching with particular interest in relationship to this is the coming political brawl over reopening schools. We will um, we will pay a lot of attention to this in the coming days. But right now, I want to turn our attention to uh, two rulings yesterday issued by the Supreme Court and to take those up with me. Ben Johnson is here. So he and I will be right back.
Joining me now, Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can also follow him on Twitter at The Rights Writer. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. So we have uh, two uh, two rulings issued yesterday by the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, they are going to make public their remaining opinions later today. But both of the rulings yesterday I would describe as good for evangelical Christians. Why don't you brief us in on those? Both of them were very good. Uh, The first one is a strengthening of what's known as the ministerial exception. This was uh, first brought to the Supreme Court in the Hosanna v. Tabor case a few years ago. Uh, This had been a doctrine in the law for a very long time. It's not explicitly in the Constitution, but it flows naturally from the First Amendment. Uh, The First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law uh, establishing a religion nor restricting the free exercise thereof. And the ministerial exception says that if a, a congregation or a religious nonprofit says that someone is a minister, then they have the right to determine that person's employment, who is and is not employed as a minister of the church uh, in teaching, whether that's uh, in the pulpit or whether that's in a church school. Uh, this had been held in Hosanna v. Tabor, but uh, the woman in that case had said that she had been fired for, uh, for various other causes. The Obama administration's EEOC supported her all the way to the Supreme Court, but she had taken the title of minister and she had a great deal of religious training. She held herself out as a minister of the Lutheran faith in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod School. And so they decided that there had been two additional teachers who had come forward who were in Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles uh, who did not have that level of training and didn't specialize in religious training as much. Uh, they taught religion as part of their overall duties in teaching a full class. And so they decided to test the limits of the ministerial exception. A 7-2 ruling came down that religious education and formation of students is the reason that most public reli- private religious schools exist. And so choosing the people who, who teach that is inherently part of the church's mission. That is, churches should have the right to decide whether teachers uh, or continue to teach the faith to young students in private religious schools, not the government. So uh, this is true even if they don't uh, necessarily embrace the title minister, even if they don't uh, predominantly teach the faith as part of what they do. Uh, they are teaching the faith, and therefore they are ministers. By the way, in a very important concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas said the government should defer to religious organizations when they say someone is a minister, because judges don't have the right to under, don't have the right to decide, and really don't have the expertise to even understand what qualifies as a minister, depending on what church or denomination or sect or religion someone is in. Uh, the ruling said that you, know, you can be considered a minister if you teach religion in school, but Justice Thomas said, really, if the church says that you are a minister and the person accepts this title as part of their job duties, then that person should be considered a minister, period. The government should not be intervening. Otherwise, the government is deciding who is and is not a minister in a church. So that was a very important ruling. And by the way, you had uh, Justices Kagan and Breyer, two of the liberals, siding with the the, uh, five uh, Supreme Court conservative bloc members uh, in that ruling. So that was an important one. In the second one, uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor finally won yet again at the Supreme Court. The Little Sisters have been fighting. (laughs) All right, yeah, let's hear it for the sisters. Uh, 
They, uh, you know, they've been fighting for the poor for uh, for more than 150 years. They've been fighting the HHS contraceptive mandate since it was promulgated 10 years ago, and uh, the state of Pennsylvania, as well as New Jersey and some others, said that. Uh, the uh, Trump administration, when it had a religious exemption carve-out, had one for religious objections and one for moral objections. Uh, they had said that uh, there was a procedural issue in the uh, the uh, Supreme Court. Again, seven to two, same members. Uh, only Sotomayor and uh, Ginsburg cited against this ruling. All the other seven justices supported this ruling. They said that uh, the Trump administration has every right to make this exemption because the contraceptive mandate isn't even in the Affordable Care Act. This is something that uh, was deferred to the federal bureaucracy. It was written. It was written in a, an incredibly uh, pernicious and, and harmful way where if you refuse to go along with this, you could be fined $100 per employee per day if you refuse to uh, to supply contraceptives, including potentially abortifacient uh, procedures and sterilization to your employees, even if you're a group of nuns. So uh, the nuns finally win their opt-out. This is this is a good day. The, the bad news is in the uh, concurrence was written by Justice Alito, as he and Alito and Thomas both note, this is just going to go back to the courts again. They'll find another procedural issue, and this is going to keep going on until they finally decide the underlying issue of whether or not there is a religious right for them to exempt out of this. This is a procedural issue. The court should just say the little sisters, nuns don't have to provide contraception, period. Well, which seems... Which seems simple enough, but it never it, it the simple solution does not seem to be the one we opt for in the culture today. Um, but, yes, that seems the reasonable, simple solution to this. Nuns should not be required to provide uh, birth control um, for so many obvious reasons. But, um, OK, you and I will leave that one there. Let's take a very brief break. Ben, when we come back, can we pivot to um what I would describe as economic headlines. Joe Biden released an economic recovery plan yesterday called Build Back Better. But I'd also like to talk about um, what we're hearing from what I would describe as the political left flank. Uh, Representative Ilhan Omar is calling for the dismantling of the U.S. economy and our political system. Um, and so I'd, I'd like to I'd like to talk about economics when we come back. Can we do that? Let's do so. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. You're my defender. You fight for me. I will remember. Continuing my conversation with Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at actonacton.org. Uh, all right. So Joe Biden, I haven't read it yet. Let me just confess and admit to that. Um, he's a Democratic a presumptive nominee running to serve as the next president of the United States. He's released an economic recovery plan called Build Back Better. Um, here are the headline takeaways this morning. Uh, it calls for a $400 billion four-year increase in government purchasing of U.S.-based goods. That's sort of the Buy America component of this. Plus a $300 billion uh, new research and development in U.S. technology. Um, and a plan to propose tightening current Buy America laws. So, um uh, that's going to seem not very globalist to globalists who read this. And it may be of, uh, of almost more significant interest would be the pressure that he and, and other, if there are such people centrists in the Democratic Party, are going um, to feel is this pressure from their left flank. Um, Representative Ilhan Omar is calling for the dismantling of the U.S. economy and our political system. Tell us what's going on here. 
Yeah, the uh, the latter uh, is is obviously a much more sweeping and a more visceral reaction that has a lot more support among the grassroots, uh, such as uh, some of the people you've seen pulling down statues and so on. Uh, and although they're they're a minority, obviously a very tiny percentage of of people generally, uh, they are of course the ones with the loudest megaphone, and they have. Uh, the entire media echoing their message. So Ilhan Omar, one of five members in the squad, and Nancy Pelosi at times has tried to to talk about what a small group of people they are, and yet they punch so far above their weight. Uh, Ilhan Omar, of course, was one of the first to ca- talk about defunding the police in Minneapolis, uh, which is ironic when uh, when she was criticized for the state of Minneapolis and its crime rate. Uh, earlier, earlier on, she said, I'm a U.S. congressman. I don't have anything to do with the internal decisions of what's happening in Minneapolis. And yet, uh, when it comes to uh, the, the decisions of the police force, now suddenly she's making very concrete recommendations that uh, the police force be entirely defunded, dismantled in Minneapolis. And she says that's not far enough. She said, uh, we can't stop at criminal justice reform or police reform. She said, we have to tear down systems of oppression, and that includes the entire uh, U.S. economy, whether it's in housing, education, healthcare, employment, or in the air we breathe. And so if you take this narrative that the United States is nothing except the words of, a, of 11 of the founders who happen to be slaveholders, and those 11 founders were nothing except slaveholders, then you believe that everything that's flown from that, the U.S. Constitution, our way of government, uh, 200 years of history, 244 years as of this past week, is nothing but fruit of a poison tree. And so the entire system has to be cut up root and branch because they have a utopian vision of what could replace that. And generally, it's, it's either intersectionality or it's a form of, of socialism. And Ilhan Omar certainly is a democratic socialist. So they have a utopian vision for what would replace that, which is not Christian. Uh, Christians understand that perfection will not come until Jesus Christ rules and reigns from the throne. Anything short of that will only be sinful people ruling over other sinful people. And the more that people have power, uh, the greater that corruption will increase. So uh, that's generally what we're, we're going to see with uh, the, the system that is being proposed. Biden's plan and proposal uh, is sort of striking for how understated it is, at least at, at this moment, certainly in, in contrast with uh, the squad, but also in its own terms. He's talking about things like buying American, which is, which is something Democrats really haven't talked about much since Dick Gephardt back in the 1980s. Uh, that's that's kind of striking. There is a $300 billion R&D for things like electronic vehicles, so you can expect a lot more solyndras, the government trying to pick winners and losers. And generally, when they do that, the taxpayers are the losers. But uh, uh, that, that I think, is, is really what strikes me, is that the details that have been released so far, and the details have only been out about an hour, uh, this is somewhat underwhelming, and I don't think this is going to get his campaign off on a dramatic foot. And you'll continue to see this tension where the real locus of power in the party is not going to be its uh, titular head, but it's going to be these uh, five or six or a few dozen figures on the far left who are sort of wagging the dog. Ben, when you think back to the the nation's founding, um, because I would observe that part of the challenge, in fact, maybe a mammoth part of the challenge that we face today is so few so few people actually understand um, the basis of our economic system and the basis of our political system. Um, and so what would you have people understand about the relationship between 
the economy and our political system? Like what would be one foundational thing you'd like for people to um, to know? I guess one foundational thing would be that economic freedom and political freedom reinforce one another. Uh, if you have to ask for your daily bread from the hand of the government, that means that you have very little recourse to try and stand up against that government. As people in Venezuela are learning, as people in totalitarian or socialist governments have learned throughout their entire history. On the other hand, if you have your own source of free enterprise you can provide for yourself, then the government is dependent for its will on you. In fact, even uh, in English history out of which we emerged, the Magna Carta came about because the king was so weakened that he had to go to the rest of the power to go to parliament in order uh, to put his, even though he was king, in order to get his decrees passed because he no longer had the economic power that he once did. And so uh, when when the economic power is dispersed widely, when people have the ability to generate free relationships, then economic centralization uh, disappears. But so does political centralization. People are empowered through that. I think the perfect economic system, as it's spoken of in the Old Testament, is every every individual is lying under his own fruit and under his own tree and under his own vine. That ultimately is what uh, God intends for each of us, that we are self-sufficient to the greatest extent possible. We trade and we cooperate with other people, and it's a cooperative system uh, end, ending up with an abundance mentality where we serve and help others as opposed to the government decreeing what shall be done, taking away freedom, and uh, regimenting society along its own guidelines instead of respecting the God-given freedom for which we've been created. And there's a, a distinction there to be made between a cooperative system and a collective. Well, very much. Uh, you know, a, a, co a cooperative system is one where uh, if I have something that I wish to uh, trade or engage or I have a product that I can sell to you, you have the right to uh, pick it up and you have the right to purchase it. You also have the right to reject it. Uh, we're, for example, uh, that's reversed in uh, the Obamacare that we've been discussing in The Little Sisters of the Poor case where everyone has to purchase a certain kind of product, in this case, a health insurance plan. Uh, so now that's no longer cooperative. Now this is coercive. And collectively, we all have to purchase things that are decreed for others that don't necessarily fit what we need. Uh, and the more that, um, the more that uh, these decisions are left in our own hands, the happier we are, the more that others can serve the needs we actually have. The government simply doesn't have the information to know. Those of us who are in the sandwich generation, you, me, many others in, the, in our audience, have unique needs that depend upon the needs of those in our family, in our circle, and the government can't know those. Uh, so it cannot, it cannot tailor something specifically to the needs that we have. Instead, it should be up to us to choose how best to, uh, to serve this and for others who wish to fill that need uh, to step forward and uh, gratefully help. Uh, and we, we will gratefully accept the, the help that they offer, uh, even if it's, uh, even if it's uh, for their own economic benefit. Hey, Ben, I think at some point we should talk about the um, the economic weight and heft of religious institutions and organizations and nonprofits, um, the good, the, the economic good that's actually brought to bear um, on the culture because of the ways in which Christians in particular, but but volunteers in general, um, the economic power that's brought to bear there, because I... I do think that um, that part of what is suppressed in in conversations um, about you know remaking everything um, is that every single one of those um, 
religiously affiliated institutions, certainly, but also more broadly, any any sort of convictional volunteer organization is going to be swept up and swept away in these um, tear it all down uh, approaches. So I'm, I'm thinking that in the coming weeks, we should turn to that as well. That's very important. Not only are uh, obviously most faith organizations have a charitable component, but even in secular organizations, a huge number of people who volunteer for that are motivated by their faith. So uh, quite often that's overlooked or swept aside. But believe me, we're just beginning to scratch the surface of the amount of sheer good that charity and philanthropy uh, that's carried out in the name of Christ is done because people recognize everyone is created in the image of God. That's something that bears repeating again and again on this show. Amen. Hey, Ben Johnson, thanks so much. Uh, we'll talk with you again next week. That's Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute. You can find him at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. You can also find him on Twitter. He tweets at The Rights Writer. We'll be right back. All right, when was the last time you had a real, I mean real, genuine conversation with a person from a very different thought silo, a person who is operating every single day um, among non-believers, as a non-believer? Now, this is a distinctively Christian ministry. This is a distinctly Christian worldview radio program. Most of my guests are Christians. Let me just go ahead and tell you my next guest is not. Tom uh, Crottenmaker is a very public non-Christian. He describes himself as a secular Jesus follower. Uh, He directs communications at Yale Divinity School. He writes on religion and values in American public life for the USA Today. He has quite a following, and he has a lot of influence in the culture. Tom Crottenmaker is going to be here next, and he and I are going to talk across a range of issues. Um, This is how you have a conversation with a person with whom you profoundly disagree. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. How does your team see you? Does she know you love her? Does he get that you've made mistakes too? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. It's not uncommon to find a mom or dad who wants to come across to their teen like they've got it all together. But one of the things I think is healthy for parents and teens is honesty. In fact, let your teenager see that you have shortcomings and setbacks. It'll cause two things to happen. First, they'll cut you some slack because no one is perfect. Then they'll be more realistic about themselves. I hope that together, you and your team can give each other grace. You'll both have your mistakes, but admitting your weaknesses only deepens your relationship. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find helpful resources at parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Joining me now, Tom Crottenmaker. You may know him uh, as the director of communications at Yale Divinity School. You more likely know him as a uh, contributor from the Board of Contributors at the USA Today, where you probably often read his op-ed pieces. You can find him online at TomCrottenmaker.com or follow him on Twitter, TK, well, T. Crottenmaker. I'd like to think of it as TK Rottenmaker, but that's not what it is. It's, but that is how it's spelled. Hey, 
Tom, welcome yeah, back. Yeah, that's how it's spelled. Hi, Carmen. <laughs> it's great. It's great to have you back with us. Um, this to let you know, I set this up um, with my listeners uh, as as a demonstration of how to have a civil conversation with someone with whom you have profound disagreements. Um, because I think that if you and I were to till the soil across uh, a wide range of issues, there would be a number of places and points at which um, our understandings of the world and our approach to it would diverge. But you and I um, are able to talk about things um, in, in, in a way that hopefully is a demonstration to others of what we would like to see produced in the culture writ large. Well, I wanted to thank you for inviting me to come on the program with you, but triple thank you in view of what you just said, because I agree that it's really important for people of different beliefs and persuasions to have productive, generous conversations, and you're doing that. So thank you. Thank you. Well, absolutely. So um, let's turn first to this recent op-ed that you authored in the USA Today, uh, published on June the 30th. And this is really focused on um, those of us who are white not uh, not giving in to what you describe as a as a very present temptation, um, and that is to become uh, complacent and and sort of turn away from um, the the current conversation related to uh, our racialized history and and race in this country. And you describe it as not giving in to anti-racism attention deficit disorder. So anti-racism attention deficit disorder, I think, is a real malady. Um, And we have a terrible track record of turning our attention for very brief periods of time to these concerns, but not with any sort of sustained effort. So make your case. I'm concerned that could happen again. Like many people, I'm heartened by what we've seen the past couple of months in terms of this outburst of anti-racism hope and energy. Yes, fury, but hope and energy, a determination to really see things as they are and to do the work of dismantling racism. And I've seen a lot of white people step up and realize that this is not just a problem for our black fellow citizens, but this is a this is work that white people have to undertake as well. And so I've been heartened to see that. Yet, as I say in the piece, I worry that white people might start moving on prematurely. I mean, already, The stories about the protests are receding from the headlines. Unfortunately, coronavirus is back in the back center stage. But as this recedes from the headlines, there's this temptation to start turning our attention to other pressing and maybe more pleasant matters. And the thing is, white people have the luxury of moving on and checking out. It might seem to us that, well, it's no skin off our nose if these subtle forms of racism continue. We may think that it's no knee on our neck, if you know what I'm saying. But as I say in the piece, it is skin off our nose. As white people, it's our responsibility to do the work of anti-racism. And I think that all of our lives are degraded as long as racism persists. When we talk about... um you use the word luxury. I might be tempted to insert the word privilege there. Yeah, um, very much okay, so. Okay, so so as as a white woman, I actually do not have to I do not have to think every single day when my uh 17-year-old gets in a car or 16 almost 17-year-old gets in a car and and you know and drives across the county or even across the state, I do not have to um give give her the um, you're black. If you get stopped by a police officer, let's remember what we're doing. Um, 
I don't have to give her that that talk every single time she leaves the house. Um, it, I that's a privilege. It is a privilege to not have to do that. And I I think that in that I am challenged to articulate to an overwhelmingly white listening audience, overwhelmingly Christian white listening audience right now, um, to not become defensive when someone else acknowledges your privilege. And the the privilege is a privilege of being able to ignore things that other people cannot ignore because of the color of their skin. I'm so glad you used the word defensive and that you brought that up because that is so key. And I have a very strong personal commitment to not be defensive when I learn about my privilege or have it pointed out to me. There's no need for defensiveness, and it can be very destructive. I took this up, actually, in my Secular Jesus Follower book in the chapter about racism. I talked about privilege, and I talked about people I know who take umbrage at the suggestion that they have white privilege. And they'll say, well, I've had it tough in my life. I haven't had anything given to me, and I've worked hard for everything that I've had. And I say that I, too, had you know rough aspects of my childhood and Nothing hasn't been handed to me. But it's really important to realize that admitting white privilege doesn't mean that you're a bad person. You don't need to be defensive. The thing to do is to see it when it exists and then try to leverage it on behalf of people who don't have it. And so I'm like you. I never had to have the talk with my daughter when she was a teenager. I don't have to have it with my uh, grandson who's gonna be hitting the teen years in about seven or eight years. And that's a form of privilege, Carmen. And um, this conversation is bringing back to mind um, something that happened with one of my friends here in New Haven a couple of years ago. Um, This guy who's had to move away, unfortunately, he was a grad student, um, India, I mean, Asian American guy with darker complexion. And one time we were driving together and I was grumbling about the red lights in New Haven. They seemed to go on for like five or 10 minutes. I know I'm exaggerating. And then they typically have a sign that says, no right-hand turn on red, which bothered me because usually the coast is clear and you could go. And so I mentioned to my friend that, you know, the heck with it. I'm going anyway, and I often do go anyway. And he looked at me and said that you'd be thinking about that differently if you had dark-colored skin like me. That, for me, was a wake-up call to um, another form of white privilege that I have. Yeah, there's no, there are, there's just no question um, that that it's a reality, that there is partiality. This is the other language that I am trying to uh, partiality, lift Partiality, yeah. There is partiality shown uh, or demonstrated. There is partiality um, in action uh, in, our, in our country, in our hearts, in our relationships, in our churches. Tom Crottenmaker and I are seeking to be people who show no partiality. I do so as a motivation. Uh, my motivation is because uh, my life is wholly given over to Jesus. Um, Tom's ideas are given over to the ideas of Jesus. He is uh, a self-described secular Jesus follower. I'm going to have him describe that to you when we come back. Let's take a very brief break, and then I'm going to continue my conversation with Tom Crattenmaker. All right, I don't know how far it is from uh, New Haven to Hartford. What would be my traveling distance, Tom? About 40 miles. All right. So those of you who are listening this morning uh, in Hartford, Connecticut on 94.1 FM or AM 1290, um, Tom Crottenmaker is your neighbor. So um, you could take him up on his offer to buy me a really good slice of pizza, which he says is better than anything I ever had at Princeton when I was there. 
Um, let's because I think that we want <laughs> right, to. That offer still stands. I know. I'm coming, man. I'm coming. We want to widen the conversation. We actually want to get more people in the conversation, maybe across what we would describe as. Um, an aisle of difference. And the aisle of difference in this particular case is that Tom describes himself as a secular Jesus follower. In fact, he wrote a book entitled Confessions of a Secular Jesus Follower, Finding Answers in Jesus for Those Who Don't Believe. Um, Tom, describe to my listeners what it means for you to call yourself a secular Jesus follower. They need to know that I am someone who does not have conventional God belief. And I'm not someone who could be thought of as conventionally religious, which is to say that I don't belong to a church and I don't pray in the normal ways. You could say that I chose not to have this belief or I couldn't bring myself to have this belief. That's a complicated matter. But the fact is, I am not conventionally religious. Yet, ever since I was young, I have found myself fascinated by Jesus, inspired by Jesus, wanting to approach life in the way that Jesus would have us approach it. We can talk about what that looks like in practice. But the thing is, I have this deep regard for Jesus, and I want to have my life molded to some degree by Jesus, but I'm not a church person. So what am I to do? The aha moment for me happened a couple years before I wrote that book, and it was the realization that even though there is no such thing in the religion categories, I am a secular Jesus follower. All right. And unpack the word um, as you would define it, secular, because I think that there are probably a lot of people listening of different operating understandings of what that word means. Right. I mean it in the colloquial sense, as I was saying a minute ago, somebody who's not conventionally religious, not a church guy or not involved in any other kind of religious organization or practices and not a conventional believer. If you ask me where I am on God, I would say agnostic. Right. That's an excellent word. I think there are probably people listening right now who um, who would understand that word quite well. Um, you know, as we as we watch the percentage of the American population that describes itself um, as nuns, as people who do not um, express a, con- a what you're describing here as a conventional system of belief in God, um, one of the things that I just deeply appreciate about you is you actually helped me understand a, a growing part of the culture uh, that I live in. And so um, I just wanted to say that. Um, and then I would also just like to, because you are on um, an, an Ivy League campus um, and this conversation about the things we're allowed to talk about, the ideas that we're allowed to hold and espouse in public spaces today, this is very robust. And so, you know, without maybe spending too much time and attention on the actual letter in uh, uh, that Harper's has um, has published and that many hundreds of academics have signed. Can you just talk with us about what you what it feels like in terms of a freedom of belief and freedom of expression on a university campus right now? Yeah, I'm really uh, glad you brought this to my attention. You shared that link with me yesterday. I noticed that this letter is covered in today's New York Times. So um, it is a big deal. And if you go down the list of people I could who be your signed clipper. that letter. Yeah. I could be like your clipping service. There you go. Well, you're, you're invited, as are people listening, to send <laughs> me stuff whenever you think I'll be interested. I learn a lot that way. But if you go down that list of people who signed it, that's an incredible who's who of famous authors and thinkers and pundits and uh, inside and outside of academia. And so it's really interesting for me to think about that from where I am. So first of all, 
I am situated at the Divinity School at Yale. And this is a divinity school that not only studies religion, but does religion. Almost everybody at Yale Divinity School is a Christian, and there's the practice of faith every day and everywhere you look. Some people may think it's weird that a secular guy is the communications director. That's a whole separate question. But the fact is, it is a Christian divinity school. And so freedom of Christian expression is certainly honored in my environment. But let's look at the issue more broadly. I've been trying to understand this, Carmen, as I mentioned in an email yesterday. I think there's a generational difference. Um, I myself am a baby boomer, sort of on the young end of it, and I don't really identify as a baby boomer. But let's just say people in my demographic tend to be more absolutist about free speech. And Mm. the idea is that you should allow free expression, and the best solution to bad expression is more expression, better expression. But I'm paying attention to the younger people I'm around and noticing some um, some nuances in the way they approach this and even some skepticism. And even though most would say, yes, I believe in the principle of free speech, you'll hear younger people asking some questions that might sound cynical to you, like, why would a university grant a microphone and a platform to this person or that person? And why would so-and-so say this harmful thing or this foolish thing, even if it might be their right to say it? So it's a somewhat different conversation. And for people in the more absolutist older generation, there's a kind of alarm, and it feels like free speech is now maybe going by the wayside, which is of great concern to them, which I understand. And yet, if they wanted to uh, take an American flag and burn it and stomp on it in public, um, they would expect all of the rest of us to support their right to do that as an expression of freedom of speech. And it's that hypocrisy that is just eating at, at the craw of um, of not only religious Americans, but but people who who understand patriotism um, in, in a particular way as well. It seems to me that most people, if you gave them a truth serum, would say that, yes, there are certain forms of speech that are not okay. And everybody knows the example because it comes from a famous Supreme Court case that you can't falsely shout fire in a crowded theater, right? And there right. are probably speech is other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, was, I think most people would agree that um, there are certain things that are just not responsible speech. Like, let's use a Connecticut example. There was this horrible. A mass shooting at Sandy Hook in Connecticut, I'm going to say five, six, seven years ago. And a lot of kids were killed. And believe it or not, there are those who say the whole thing was a hoax. It never mm-hmm. happened. It was all staged to try to discredit gun freedoms. Now, should somebody who spouts that be given free speech? Is that a legit use of free speech? Or is that sort of an exploitation or an abuse of free speech? And that's when you start to get into debates, like what's in and what's out when it comes to the kind of speech that should be allowed. And there's never an easy answer. You'd have to sort of go case by case, and people are going to disagree. All right. I, uh, I love talking with you. We're out of time today. Um, let's, let's not let it be so long before we talk again, um, because I do think that, um, 
your willingness to engage with me and my joy in uh, engaging with you uh, is is my I, I am hoping it is a demonstration to those who are listening and maybe even those who then might overhear. Uh, uh, this is a demonstration of how it's done. Tom and I like each other. We disagree on many things, um, but having fruitful conversations with one another is how we are going to move forward together as a unified people. So, Tom Crottenmaker, thank you so much for joining us. You guys can find him online. Uh, You can also find him at the USA Today. You can find him on Twitter. Um, Tom, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on, and thanks for your great attitude. Until next time, we'll be right back. All right, so grace and greetings to each and every one of you who's listening right now. So now, of course, my uh, my encouragement and challenge to you is to reach out to a person who you know does not actively share your system of beliefs and have a conversation with them. Actually ask what they're thinking and why they're thinking it. Ask them to define terms um, that you may um, define differently. You heard me ask Tom to uh, to define the word secular. Why? Well, because maybe we're using it differently or we're understanding it differently. There are nuances in the language that we use. You and I might have like Christianese, the way that we use particular words. When others use those same words, they may mean different things by them. If we don't even have a basis for shared understanding of the words we're using, it's going to be really hard for us to cultivate a genuine understanding of the other person's uh, position and viewpoint. And I want to understand your viewpoint on things in order that we can then have uh, a real exchange of ideas. All right. The real exchange of ideas continues in another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.